KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for A Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is October the 30th, 2012. And they are surfing on Lake Michigan. Can you believe it? It's the third day, I think the third day, of the great flood back east. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. I, I wonder, I wonder. Ah, I wish I, well, I don't wish I were there. My Manhattan, New York City, well, the whole east coast. I guess I... I think of Manhattan because it's such a special island. Uh, I think of it as our central city. I mean, I know it's not the capital, but it's the heart of the arts, the place where so many of us go. uh, Well, I went in search of myself, you know, and then turn around and come back to San Francisco. That's where people come to find themselves right uh, back to the Pacific. There's a New Yorker cartoon I kept for years. It shows uh, San Francisco and NYC, and of course, the rest of the country is called the flyover, which I think is probably an exaggeration, right? I think that that doesn't quite hold up, especially if they're surfing on Lake Michigan. They say that the waves are uh, uh, once in a lifetime, right? Anyway, those of us here on the coast of California, uh, I think it's hard for us to imagine uh, exactly what it feels like back there. I I looked at the pictures, um, the TV, the mass media is a nonstop. I checked the Weather Channel, of course, the horrendous pictures, you know, and the hysterical uh, commentators, you know. <laughs> hanging from the hanging from the lamp post, screaming, the wind blowing their clothes off. They're so so uh, dramatic. Anyway, I have not heard yet. Well, maybe I missed it. Maybe I missed it. But the mass media hasn't really gotten into discussions of climate change or uh, global warming or about any of the long range problems. I guess I'm expecting too much, but I would have thought there would be 
a few efforts to connect the dots, the president says that we must uh, think about uh, what will sustain the relief efforts, you know, take the long, the long view of, he's been very presidential, I guess we call that, I think of LBJ going down south in the big, um, the big catastrophes during his term in office, yes, uh, came charging in, you know, with the, uh, down in the dark with a flashlight saying, your president is here. Yes, LBJ was definitely the type. Um, I think President Obama is so calm. I Actually, I like his style, but, you know, he's practically British. I love it uh, that the president says that the election will take care of itself. That's the right attitude, just a shrug. Actually, I'm sure he's relieved not to have to spend the end of the campaign the last week uh, doing the dance, the kabuki dance, you know, making those generic speeches. And no need to talk to that other fellow, no need to to, uh, speak about the Republican, uh, the... uh, Oh, never mind. Yes, we don't have to mention his name again. I hope, I hope he will never again be part of Barack Obama's agenda anyway. I keep wondering, where is Michelle? Someone said she'd been on on the TV screens lately. I, I haven't seen much of her. That makes me nervous. Think about it. Looking at travel brochure. No, no, no. I have such deep anxiety about next Tuesday, November the 6th. I, I'm afraid to even think it, to say nothing of speak it. Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, does Mitt Romney go to Ohio? What's he doing there? Ohio. Always a tragedy waiting there. What's that song? Yes. Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why did I ever trust Ohio? Never mind. Uh, I think, I think, well, for me, politics is never real. It's just a dance. It's just a um, a show, you know, like theater. Water, on the other hand, is real. Katrina was real. That was, talk about a black guy in the eyes of the world, uh, but then, of course, if you think about it, uh, Katrina was politics, too. It was infinitely politics. Uh, this new catastrophe is going to be uh, not just political. It's it's going to be, what is the word, uh, millennial? No, no, no. It, it's one more terrible, terrible step uh, in the... Uh, well, let's call it our decline. Uh, nobody, nobody wants to hear downbeat thoughts. We're all supposed to be positive. Uh, but we know that the economic consequences of these disasters rule our lives. Uh, it has global effects, all the socio-political brouhaha. All these 
problems and disasters. It all goes round and round the globe. Connect those dots. Uh, down the road a piece. All the, uh, well, actually that's all I do see on mass media is how much is this going to cost us? How many billion dollars a day when people cannot buy and sell 24-7? Oh, the pundits will soon start talking about jobs, jobs, jobs. You know, the jobs that will uh, be forthcoming to fix the infrastructure. Well, that's not bad. That's not bad. You know, uh, disaster always makes jobs, especially after a deluge. Uh, if only they'd get in there and get real jobs. I was watching that show, Treme, all about uh, New Orleans now, years and years after that deluge. <laughs> How the carpetbaggers came, right? I looked at that uh, picture, the ubiquitous picture on television of that crane, that huge crane hanging off that 80-story skyscraper in New York, bending, swinging in the wind. Oh, gee, they keep saying it's going to fall on 57th Street. <laughs> A perfect metaphor for our predicament. If it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, it's not. I, I'm waiting for the New Yorker cartoons. I just can't wait. I've got one in my mind. A couple of, two, well, two elders, say, two older women, uh, watching the waves, you know, and then, uh, walking down the shoreline and seeing the houses cave into the sea and one of the women says to each other she says she says to the other one she says you see mabel i told you nature will have her way the other cartoons are of sightseers you know i saw them on television in flip-flops walking <laughs> walking in those wild winds you know i think they're emily bronte maybe some of them were jogging there on the uh, on the boardwalk in Atlanta, right there you go. Uh, I saw one in little ballerina slippers. I, I think people just want to have fun. Uh, uh, some of them are trying to get their pictures on the net, you know. What is it, YouTube? Everybody gets to be a star for five minutes. Uh, I heard jokes about, oh, what is it, the Statue of Liberty is hiding behind one of the uh, buildings. Something about, um, you know, you juxtapose all these uh, signs and symbols. The people that I called, actually, I made a couple of calls. One to New Jersey and... <laughs> Uh, that friend was not quite ready to see any joke. Uh, you know how that is. Uh, I can remember trying to make jokes about our earthquake while it was still going on. I was on the street and a couple of kids were in a phone booth. We had phone booths back in 89. And I stood out there talking about how this would bring the community together. Give us a sense of community. I kid you not, the earthquake was still shaking us. And they looked at me like I was an idiot. Anyway, 
history happens. Uh, uh, and now comes the follow-up. The, uh, what is it someone said? Uh, yes, about uh, history happens and women follow behind with a bucket. It's always women's work, the cleaning up. Anyway, <clears throat> Sandy is definitely the wrong name for this hurricane, this big flood today. Uh, Chris Matthews on uh, MSNBC, he kept saying, well, that's too cuddly. What a name, Sandy. How about, how about Sadie for sadomasochist? Savage. Some S. They need an S. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. I couldn't think. I know. I've got one. We call it the Samson. You know, a blind man who's been blinded in his fury. He knocks down the temple, right? Blind fury. The rage of nature. Of course, that is, uh, all wrong. It's only a human characteristic to attribute human emotions to nature. I think in literature, that is called the pathetic fallacy. I learned that my sophomore year as an uh, English major. Yes, the pathetic fallacy in literature is when the storm um, is, what is it, echoes or uh, manifests the human mood, you know, uh, in Emily Bronte's book, The Wuthering Heights, they almost cry out or scream with a human voice. Uh, same in Tess of D'Urberville, I was watching that last night, and nature doing her thing. Unfortunately, in television, they couldn't do the best one. In Tess of D'Urberville, uh, the fallen woman or the... the uh, uh, she's not a fallen woman, good heavens, no. She's a, a great saint and hero, but she's hiding in the woods from the terrible men who are out hunting. And she falls asleep, and uh, while she's uh, asleep, the birds are in the trees up above her, and they die. They drip blood on her first, and then they, the wounded birds who are uh, uh, killed in the hunt... They die and fall off the tree, fall on top of her. And uh, I guess that is a uh, a pathetic fallacy, the notion that the wounded would join Tess uh, on the floor of the forest. Uh, <coughs> in the end, she goes to Scone, Stonehenge, Stonehenge to die. Uh, I'm sorry, I seem to be coughing, right? Nothing gets me <clears throat> coughing. Yes, Scone Hinge uh, is the little coffee house next door to me. And uh, instead of saying Stonehenge, for which, of course, it is named, uh, I've taken to saying Sconehenge, which is a very trivialization, of course. <laughs> Those great stones in England where Tess of the Durberville goes to join her ancestors in order to die a heroic death. I have heard it said that Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy is the greatest novel in the English language. I wouldn't argue, although there are so many. Uh, anyway, today I was going to bring the book Dreams from My Father and read to you from Barack Obama's 
uh, autobiography, but I've done that before. Maybe I'll do that next Tuesday, just uh, just to, you know, um, refresh your memory. It's uh, a terrific book. It belongs on the shelf with other autobiographies like Richard Wright's Black Boy and... James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain. You know, there are at least there are a dozen major books by black Americans that uh, uh, we need to review. I hope that the, the school teachers are using this opportunity to um, get these books out and read them. There's a film coming uh, called Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis playing Abraham Lincoln. I think this time we just might get something worth seeing. I can't prove it. I haven't seen it, but I've seen the um, previews, and it looks like at least they've got the verisimilitude. Uh, and Daniel Day-Lewis is one of our great actors. Mm. Had the good sense to marry Arthur Miller's daughter. I guess he can't be. Who dumb? Anyway, I did bring today a book called The Bridge, all about uh, the life and rise of Barack Obama. It's kind of an historical perspective. What I liked about it is there's a lot of stuff about the White House, about the presidency itself, something that we discuss, uh, oh, you know, once every four years for about ten minutes. It's usually about... Nancy Reagan's uh, a dinner service, something like that. Uh, enough for jokes in the New Yorker. I think that's a shame. Uh, uh, it is an opportunity for a good civics course, and the pundits don't bother. I was looking. There are other things, uh, like, you know, the uh, the rules do change from time to time. I hope that this election helps us to change the rules, at least about the debates. Uh, I'm sure uh, that uh, any number of people don't know that in the beginning, the way we did things, we um, voted for the uh, uh, president. Uh, the, well, our, our uh, elected representatives voted for the president. The guy who got the most votes was president and the guy who got the second most votes became the vice president make perfect sense <laughs> then of course the uh, political party took political parties took over and we got uh, adversarial relationships you know I think we've kind of come to the end of that but um, I just didn't want to spend any more time talking about you know, Big Bird and bayonets and binders. Those are the sorts of, uh, what do you call that? Um, oh, the little flashcards that they're using. Every single pundit, you know. Big Bird is all about uh, Romney canceling PBS and how he doesn't like the arts and all of that. Years and years ago, I remember the Congress came across a little book. They wanted to get rid of the money for the arts, and they came across a little uh, book of poems, and one of the poems was a single word, and this was their excuse for canceling the money to the arts, by the way. So you can't be publishing silly books like this. It was an anthology, and was many poets, but 
one of the poets included in the anthology, wrote a poem of one word, and the word was light, but it was spelled a little differently. It was spelled L-I-G-H-G-H-T, obviously, in order to make you look at it twice. Right? Anyway, that did it for the congressman. No more money. No more nonsense. Uh, then, of course, we have the binders. <laughs> putting the women, yes, hardening the categories, putting the women, uh, well, women bound up. That would be right. Uh, Romney did goof. And then the bayonets, that was all about um, Romney saying that we had more weapons in World War One, And, of course, uh, the president had to point out that... Uh, he was speaking of an anachronism, the fact that horses and bayonets uh, were no longer appropriate because nowadays we have drones. The president did not emphasize that point, a cruel point. Anyway, in this book, The Bridge, uh, I think maybe I should save some of this and read it next week on Election Day. I may not be here because of the... Uh, the election, but I think probably I will be on, and then the pundits here will take over at five o'clock. But I wanted to read you the chapters on the slaves who built the White House. I thought it was fascinating, and some of the things that President Lincoln did. Fascinating stuff, people. Uh, the Bridge is a book written by David Remnick, R-E-M-N-I-C-K. You, of course, are familiar with David Remnick because he's the editor of The New Yorker, a magazine that I couldn't live without. It's my my reference, my little Bible. Uh, David Remnick is cool, but uh, his book is what I would call objective. People will say, of course, that it is... Uh, what is it? Bias? That is to say, I think he likes the president, and I think he likes the idea of the president. Because, of course, uh, President Barack Obama is our first black president. I suppose you could argue about that, but uh, for the moment, I think we can say yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking at the chapter about the White House. Fascinating stuff, folks. Two centuries, he writes, two centuries before Barack Obama ran for president, slaves built the White House. They quarried stone in Virginia, made nails, baked bricks in Georgetown. Yes. Hmm. Three slaves on the White House construction site were there on loan from its architect, an Irishman from Charleston named James Hoban, H-O-B-A-N. One of the slaves was designated Negro Peter, in quotes. Anyway, the uh, president's mansion was designed to look like a Leinster House in Dublin, but there were echoes of a southern plantation Sometimes, David Remnick writes, sometimes the slaves were given the equivalent of a dollar a day, but nearly all their wages were passed along to their owners. Uh, indeed, yes. <laughs> Not far from the building site of the White House, 
auctioneers from the Virginia-based firm of Franklin and Armfield sold new slaves, most from West Africa. Right, cash changed hands within a stone's throw of the White House. At the end of the 18th century, hundreds of slaves were working on federal buildings in the new capital. Here's a quote from a historian. To the southern-born, the district now presented the reassuringly familiar panorama of a plantation work site. Right. He goes on to describe in much detail. Ah, toting baskets of stone, bushels of lime, kegs of nails, blah, blah, blah. I remember an account of Jefferson's uh, plantation in which he talked about the young boys who were um, punished, I believe. I believe, I don't, well, uh, one account said that they were not whipped, but... Twelve-hour days making nails for little ten-year-old boys. Uh, Anyway, construction began on the White House in 1792. By 1798, around 90 black men were working at the site uh, and on the Capitol building. Right On a given day, about five or six slaves were out sick. They were laid up in a makeshift clinic. Let's see, the commissioners, the architects, right, they employed Dr. May, one Dr. May, M-A-Y, to take care of these slaves. They spent uh, 50 cents a day on treatment. That is not quite as cheap as you might think, but it's uh, uh, not generous. (laughs) Twelve American presidents owned slaves. Eight of them while in office. John and Abigail Adams, the first inhabitants of the White House, were, by the standards of the day, abolitionists. Uh, When they were at the White House, they kept only two servants, a white farm couple. Their idealism was rewarded by the many guests who mocked their food, their housekeeping, And their hospitality. (laughs) Ah, yes, I remember when Jerry Brown first came to the governor's mansion. Oh, never mind, you know. Hot dogs on the lawn doesn't quite do it. Anyway, Thomas Jefferson brought to the White House many members of his considerable household staff, including a few slaves. James and Dolly Madison brought more. The most famous of Madison's slaves was his body servant, Paul Jennings, who was born on Madison's estate in Virginia. Paul Jennings' father was an English trader. His mother was a slave. At the White House, Jennings was in constant contact with the president, became the executive mansion's first tell-all memoirist. He left behind a short manuscript titled The Colored Man's Reminiscences of James Madison. And there's a great deal, a couple of pages here on uh, uh, Paul Jennings' fascinating stuff. Uh, In his memoir, he talks about Dolly Madison grabbing whatever valuables she could before fleeing the White House. Uh, You remember, the White House was once attacked by the British. 
Jennings recalled the rabble that raided the mansion and stole all the silver and whatever they could lay their hands on. Uh, and then there's a page or two here on the, what I would call, the very kind words from uh, Paul Jennings about his master, James Madison. Uh, he managed to buy his freedom from Daniel Webster. Now, I haven't had a chance to get to what Abe Lincoln did in the White House. No slaves, but there was a dressmaker, a fabulous character who wrote a memoir. I love the stuff about Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln. It was Elizabeth Keckley, K-E-C-K-L-E-Y, born a slave. She has a fabulous memoir. I will get to that next Tuesday. Abraham and Mary Todd Lincoln and their seamstress, whom Mary Todd Lincoln called her best living friend. Next week, this has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Be inspired to learn new ways of taking care of you, your family, and your community with the San Francisco Green Festival on Saturday and Sunday, November 10th and 11th at the San Francisco Concourse Exhibition Center. The Green Festival is a sustainability event to encourage you to learn new ways of taking care of yourself and their environment with over 150 visionary speakers and 400 green exhibitors, along with cooking demos, green home products, children activities, green job information, interactive workshops, and live music and entertainment. The Green Festival is Saturday and Sunday, November 10th and 11th at the San Francisco Concourse Exhibition Center at 635 8th Street in San Francisco. For tickets and information, log on to greenfestivals.org. Once again, that's greenfestivals.org. The San Francisco Green Festival. Live well. The Green Festival is co-sponsored by 